And this could well be one of the most dangerous ideas I ever talk about in this podcast. Welcome to the Jeff Effect. Okay, folks, good day. We, we are going to, we're going to get some trouble today. Um, today's podcast, I'm going to take some risks. I'm going to risk the anger and derision of economics professors and financial analysts and cryptocurrency worshipers and hedge fund managers and gold hoarders alike. And that sounds like a good time, so let's get to it. Um, now, with the COVID-19 crisis and all the job impacts and the economic impacts and all those things going on right now, you know, a lot of folks are just randomly posting questions online. I try to answer them when I can. And, or so, some people are sending me emails or direct messaging or you know, on, uh, on uh, social media. Everybody wants to know about these economic impacts of the current crisis. Now, sure, they want to know about the health and wellness perspective. That's, that's vital. We could talk about that. We might someday. But people also want to know about what's going to happen from a social and economic and financial perspective. People are asking about things like, you know, the stimulus packages and the stock market and the Fed just printing money out of nothing and inflation risk and the job market and this and that. And I have a lot of thoughts on these things. There's no way I can cover all this stuff in just one podcast. But so I thought, you know, how do you, how do you carve this? You got you to tackle the topics one by one. You know, and since most of these topics, though, since they have something to do with money, right, money, it's probably best that we just start there. We got to start with talking about money. Because there's a lot of misconceptions out there about money. And you hear people all the time talking about, oh, this, that, another thing, and currency exchange rates, and you know, fiat currencies, and the gold standard, and all this stuff. I got to be honest with you folks, you know, for me, uh, this stuff's brain candy. Um, I've been studying and thinking about this stuff for, for a couple of decades now. It makes me feel very old, but really, but a couple of decades. So let's, let me just start. I got I to gotta step, step back. So forgive me. I'm, over the next week or so, we're going to be covering a lot of these COVID-19 crisis scenario uh, topics. But you know what? This isn't just stuff for now. You know, we're in a crisis right now. You know, econom economists call this an economic shock. You know, we are in a shock in the middle of it right now. Data's flying around. But you know what? We have thousands of years, 10,000 years of recorded human history, literally, that goes back, that tells us about how things happen when disruptions occur. And so we can just kind of talk about that stuff. But we're going to, I want this not just to help you now. When I, when I give this information out, I don't want it just to be something that benefits you for the next week or so. I want to help you make decisions and understand what's going on around you for the for the forever, for the rest of your life until, you know, so maybe even 20 years from now, you refer to this recording or in my other recordings, if I'm so lucky, and you say to people, when you want to explain, you know, something explained to you, listen to this because it helps. All right. So let's talk about money. What is money? Let's talk about the first money, the very first money, Right. The very first money, somewhere between you know, 6,000 and 8,000 years ago, the first money, in my view, came about in ancient Mesopotamia. And that's that 
region in the Middle East that today causes lots of uh, you know uh, political trouble. But but back then it was known as the Fertile Crescent, and it's as the cradle. And they also call it the cradle of civilization. And one of the reasons it was the cradle of civilization is because they invented writing there, and they invented money there, and they invented you know the world's first known monetary system. They didn't know they were doing this. They were just being practical and pragmatic because something that human beings do, one of the, one of the you know, we eat, we breathe, we sleep, we need shelter, we reproduce, and given the opportunity, we make markets. So this is what they did. They needed a system to kind of keep track of that. And so the first money, the first unit of trade, the first storehouse with a value, they... They would make little round balls of clay, just look like a marble, but a little bit big. Like, a, like if you if you ever chopped marbles as a kid, it's called a shooter. A big, a big round marble, and they would fire it in clay. Right? They'd fight. They'd make it a clay, and they'd fire it in in a in a, a wood fired kiln, and they would use these tokens to trade sheep, or to actually not to trade sheep necessarily, but to count them. And then that became, they exchanged them, and that became the proxy for exchanging sheep, and people would make purchases with these tokens. I'm going to spare you the history. But, you know, this incredible, magical time in human development, you know, uh, was documented by a, a, a scientist, a linguist, named Denise Shamat Besserat. And I'm not pronouncing her name correctly, I'm sure, but she wrote very, very influential books on, the, on how writing came about, and I have the books, and it was influential. And what she didn't realize, in my opinion, is at the time she was also discussed, uh, discovering the world's first monetary system. So little round balls of clay. Seems ridiculous, huh? You, any, any of your kids you know, can go to kindergarten and in, in the little craft segment make little round balls of clay, and they have only the sentimental value that a mother can have for her child when given a little round ball of clay. But back then... It was life. When you had those little round balls of clay, you were rich. Makes us make it funny, right? But you know, the history, the history of mankind is filled with these things, right? So you know, uh, back in, in in more recent history, you know, uh, say in the in the Middle Ages, brass hand hammered brass rings were money in West Africa. Hand, you know, little just brass rings. Um, in Malaysia, they would uh, they would take and they'd smelt tin, you know, the metal tin. They would smelt it and shape it into little crocodiles and 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 other animals. It was crocodile money in Malaysia. Up until just the modern era, until Victorian times, cowrie shells um, were were the currency in Uganda, just polished cowrie shells that spelled C O W R Y cowrie shells. Um, let me give you one of the funniest examples, and this is an example that was actually in the first chapter of one of Milton Friedman's books, one of my favorite economists, and uh, it's, a, it's a story that he's retelling from somebody else. That, but there are thousands of small islands, you know, dotting about the South Pacific Ocean, you know, coral atolls, extinct volcanoes, and stuff like that. Today, we refer to this region as Micronesia. Now, one group of islands are now called the Caroline Islands, the Caroline Islands, and you know, they, they were, you know, discovered, invaded, you know, whatever politically correct term or non-politically correct term you want to use, uh, first by the Spanish, and then they were captured or traded to the Germans, and then, you know, all these things going on. And, and they, But at the time, the villagers on one of these islands, they, they had a local currency called, I'm not, I may not pronounce it correctly, it was called fe, fie, or 
F-E-I spelled in, in the English language, fey. And, and what these are are just carved stone rings. This is a fascinating story. They're literally limestone carved rings of stone. Perfectly round, perfectly smooth, hole in the middle. And the hole in the middle is what they would use to, to cart these things around. And the larger the stone, the more value it had. And when, when uh, villagers wanted to display their wealth to make themselves you know, feel superior to their neighbors, they would literally roll these stones out the front door of their hut and lean them against the side of the hut f to, to display their wealth. You know, like, like it's, th think of it, it's like, it's like the inst Instagram hucksters today, you know, posing in front of Lear jets and Lamborghinis on the tarmac that probably, they probably rented for the day, but they posing in front of them to display their success. Think of it this way. It's the same thing. They have, Instagram hucksters today have a lot in common with, uh, you know, tribesmen living in uh, Stone Age uh, communities in uh, the Micronesia back in the 1800s. Anyway, Whoa. it's very funny to me because... Human beings haven't changed much in 10,000 years. That's going to be the topic of a, of, a, of a podcast all by itself. Anyway, in fact, one of the stories goes that you know, the, richest, the richest family right, didn't have a stone at all. This is a fascinating story. Because what they did is, you know, they, you know, what made these stones so valuable is that the, the island that had the stone that made the fey was hundreds of miles across the open sea. So they had, but it, you couldn't farm there. So the only reason you would go there is to carve fey stones. So uh, the, the richest family to conduct a super transaction on the island, the biggest transaction of you know, land and trees, I guess, on the island, they needed a really, really large chunk of money. They needed a really, really big fey stone. So they sent a, a bunch of tribesmen towing a raft, literally towing a raft hundreds of miles to this other island, and they carved the biggest ever fey stone, right? And then they were bringing that fey stone back, literally, picture this. They're floating it in a, in a, in a handmade raft, this huge, round, 12-foot, 13-foot diameter carved chunk of limestone with a hole in the middle is flat on a raft, being towed across hundreds of miles of the South Pacific by guys paddling canoes, and they're and they're and they're paddling it back to because this guy deserves this face stone because he's doing this transaction, and the water the sea gets rough. There's a storm of some sort, and the sea gets rough. And to save their lives, the the canoe, guys in the canoes have to cut the raft loose, and then in sight of them, while, you know, as, they're, as they're paddling away, saving their own lives, they see that raft tip over and the stone slide off into the sea. It's a stone. It's sinking to the bottom of the sea. And then when they got back to the island, all right, when they got back to the island, they just testified. And they said, guys, it was the biggest fey stone ever. It was a beautiful fey stone of very high quality. And, you know, it was lost at sea. But this guy here, it's he owns that fey stone. So the richest guy in the village... Everybody agreed he had the biggest face stone on the island. Everybody agreed that he was now the richest man, even though no stone existed. But he was able to, by agreement of the population of the island, he was able to conduct transactions against his wealth that was several hundred feet under the sea.
Think about that for a second. So, all these things, right? Uh, brass rings and shells and crocodile money and little round balls of clay and, and large disks of stone. These were all forms of currency. But, you know, we, we're modern men. These are, these are primitive ancient civilizations. What, what do they know about money? We got this thing handled now, you know? We prefer to base our wealth upon tangible things. So let's talk about a couple of tangible things, right? Let me, I'll start by talking about tobacco. You know, this, is, this, is, this is especially important for the United States because it was really significant for the United States. You know, back before we were even a nation, back before, you know, this goes back 300 years, 400 years, you know, um, tobacco leaves was one of our most important export crops. It was huge. And we couldn't, and the, the, the worldwide demand had spir- just spiked dramatically. The world couldn't get enough tobacco. We're, you know, our, you know, back then, you know, there's no mechanized way to clear a farmland. When you cleared farm, you used an axe and a shovel and a pick and an ox-drawn plow. So we could not expand tobacco production fast enough to make up with demand. So tobacco was very, very valuable. Anyway, so uh, tobacco, right? Just raw tobacco. You had you know, all these enterprising farmers, entrepreneurs, were, were, were growing as much tobacco as they could get their hands on. And, and it was very valuable. Everybody wanted it. So tobacco in, in uh, Virginia and in the Carolinas and in Maryland, you know, tobacco was money. You could literally walk in and spend leaves of tobacco to buy things at the store because everybody knew. Everybody, everybody knew it was valuable. Everybody agreed that it had value, right? And so people would just spend tobacco leaves. Uh, it was even something that was declared by the legislature, declared, you know, legal currency. And it became very ungainly, right? You had people running around. And, 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 and here's the thing. There's, a, there's, a, there's something out there that, uh, let me see what's called. It's called, it's called Gresham's Law. Gresham's Law. Okay, so Gresham's Law states that cheap money drives out dear money, okay? So what these guys started doing is they started saying, okay, well, I want to spend tobacco leaves, but I also want to export tobacco leaves as well but I want to spend tobacco leaves in, 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 in shops and stuff like that. So naturally, the higher you know, uh, tobacco leaves didn't, you know, a good tobacco leaf and a bad tobacco leaf, they didn't have a relative difference. It was just so much by weight. It was weighed. So they exported all the highest quality tobacco leaves you know, to England and to France and, and, and all around the world where, where the demand was high, and they could, it could get, command a higher price when they're exporting high quality tobacco leaves, and they were spending all the cheap and ratty and maybe bent and broken and ratty tobacco leaves trying to spend that as money, and so that created a problem. So what did they do? They created big tobacco warehouses. And so you have guys come down with big bales of tobacco, and then each one of those tobacco bales was certified for quality and for weight and for measurements, and then put in the communal warehouse Think of it as a bank of tobacco leaves. And then he was given a certificate or a series of certificates that represented those tobacco leaves. And then those men could take those certificates and they would use the certificates for tobacco leaves that they deposited at the warehouse that were certified for quality and they would spend them to buy, you know, a new shirt or sack of flour or... You know, who knows? They would use that as money. Well, 
As more and more farmland got cleared, the supply of tobacco leaves caught up with demand, and it created a huge inflationary cycle because the value of individual tobacco leaves was dropping. And uh, so you, you had violence break out and people burning each other's field to try to keep the supply low in order to make sure that their field was worth more money. And the supply of tobacco leaves, the supply of currency, was too great. So the value of the currency relative to other commodities and other currencies went down. So the transition was difficult, you know, um, and they had to actually start making what we call fiat currencies. Now, the word fiat, F-I-A-T, fiat, it doesn't mean the car. It doesn't mean the the Italian car company, right, that making little, you know, red convertible sports cars. Um, But fiat currency, the word fiat is a Latin term that means either let or let it be. In other words, it's, it's, it's a term that's misused now, I think, greatly, and that's the point of controversy. But the fiat currency was currency by declaration, right? By declaration. So these colonies took and established their own printed certificates that were floating around. They made that the official currency and dictated that all transactions had to be made in these, in these currencies. And they were dark green on one side and kind of a ruddy green on the other side. Think about that. They were darkish green on one side and ruddy green on the other pieces of paper that were used as currency. That's why U.S. currency is dark green on one side and ruddy green on the other, and it's called a greenback to this day. Well, little extra history, but it's relevant, okay? So, you know, uh, that's where we get greenbacks. And and so what do you use? You can't use tobacco leaves anymore. What do you use? Well, the the... We have lots of terms. It's in our culture. It's in our brain. We like to say things are on the gold standard or something is the gold. Like you say, if you have something you really like, like pizza, you know, hey, this is the gold standard of pizza in New York. You know, We use it as a term because gold is in our head. Is gold intrinsically valuable? Is, 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 it, is it something that is really something we should be using as our standard? Well, let me tell you a couple of true stories about that. And by the way, you know, you know, you can look all these things up. Don't trust me. You, if you, if you doubt any of these stories I'm telling you, just you know, you have that Google machine at your fingertips. Make sure that you take and you look it up. But let me tell you about a, a, a very important character. And I'm and I'm going off of memory here. Uh, when I do these podcasts, I just stare at a microphone and start talking. Right. So uh, allow me to be directionally accurate. Right. I'm going to be within uh, a shooting distance of all my facts on this. But let me tell you about Mansa Musa. Mansa Musa. And I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. But Mansa Musa. He was the first great emperor king of the empire of Mali. Sometimes, sometimes he was referred to as the gold king. He, he had a very, he was very influential, and I, I believe the time period was somewhere around 1200 AD to somewhere before, for about 150 years, his empire reigned. But he's the guy who launched his empire, and, and he was, you know, if you think about that area now, you know, very rich, you know, very poor in arable land. In other words, not a lot of good farming in Mali today. Um, you know, it's where, you know, if you ever hear the, the, the exotic town of Timbuktu, Timbuktu is in Mali, and I think that he had his, uh, his the seat of his empire was nearby. Anyway, so, but one thing they have plenty of is salt and metals. 
the, the region is, uh, is many gold mines and copper mines. So the gold is what's important right now. And it was easy to get at gold. You know, a lot of gold is, you know, really hard to get. Or you have to smelt down ores that have, you know, like 2% gold in it. And extracting gold these days is very, very difficult But in certain places. But, but sometimes gold is gold nuggets lying on the ground or gold dust being just in a bunch of silt. And that was the, the situation in Mali. You know, there was a lot of surface gold in nuggets and in silt, and everybody wanted it. So this guy got rich real fast. And... Uh, you know, the, he had a uh, strategic location, a lot of trade routes ran right through his territory, charged tax on that. Anyway, the guy got really rich and he had a lot of gold. Anyway, so that's how he built his empire, right? The first currency of his empire was, uh, was gold. And as, as, uh, but then he, he, like any good Muslim, he had to, you know, every Muslim has to do his Hajj, H-A-J-J, the Hajj, the religious pilgrimage to Mecca. And this has been going on for a very long time. And so he set out to do his Hajj. And kind of as part of that, he literally put together a, like a, you know, a, a convoy marching across northern Africa, and went, you know, kind of following the water. You know, because you can find water in, in the Sahara when you, when you need it, There's, if you know where it is. And so following the water routes, he put together a caravan to march all the way to Mecca, right? Because uh, uh, he's, he's, he's one of the most powerful, powerful kings in the world at the time, and he's going on this pilgrimage. And uh, he took wagon loads of gold, in du- gold dust and in gold nuggets. And he, as, since this was a religious pilgrimage... He gave gold away to all the poor people all along his route. Now, this is, this is, you know, sounds like a great thing, right? He's, he's kind of doing the Robin Hood thing. He's just giving money away, you know, hoo-hoo, right? So he's on his way, you know, marching across there. And every place he stopped, he gave all the poor people gold. And back then, you know, there's no way to cross the Red Sea, except, you know, the only way to get across is you have to go up through Egypt and then back down, you know, through on the other side, you know, and that's what, you know, this big caravan, that's what he did to get to Mecca. And he hits Egypt and he stayed for a while in Egypt. He remained there like a, like a, like a rest stop and, and took like a, an extended vacation from his trip because it's a very arduous journey and uh, then went on his way. Now, what we would, you know, that sounds great, right? Rich guy walking around giving money to go to poor people. Um, as part as part of his religious, religious pilgrimage, isn't he great? But the result was catastrophic because with the influence gold was at the time being used as currency, which you had as an incredible increase in the money supply. Rampant inflation took hold. Rampant inflation took hold all over North Africa. Prices skyrocketed because there was too much money. In fact, since he stayed so long, and, I, and I'm going, again, going off of memory, I'm, I'm not doing the Google machine. I'm just sitting here with my iPhone with a plugged-in microphone just talking at you. But I think he stayed it's like somewhere like 45 to 60 days in Egypt, and he gave away so much gold in Egypt, it is blamed with crashing the economy there. Giving away so much gold crashed the Egyptian economy, and it took more than a decade to recover. But then he went merrily on his way, you know, because it's, it's you know, like, like all influxes of, of money, over-influxes of money, right? It, uh, it's great for a little bit. Everybody's having a party. But then inflation takes hold, 
and things go sideways. And he completed his journey and went back home. And shortly thereafter, he had to change the monetary system of his empire. And they shifted from gold to blocks of salt. Blocks of salt. You ever think of such a thing? But believe it or not, especially in North Africa, salt became as valuable as gold. Now, was this because, you know, that you know, uh, salt was, was still hard to get and that he had so much gold that he just spread it around too much that gold became almost valueless because he had too much of it comparative to the size of the transactions in the market in which he was in? Think about that for a second. That kind of blows your mind, doesn't it? Because we can't even conceive of such a thing, having too much gold. I'd like to have that problem. Wouldn't you like to have that problem? Sir, yes, sir! Right. So anyway, he had to shift the economy, and, and, and his successor and kings built upon that, and then they transacted in salt, big blocks of salt that at the time went for a comparable per, per, per gram weight or per pound you know, in, in U.S. terms, for about the same price as gold. Salt became as valuable as gold. And so salt became the new currency. There's some interesting reasons from that. So let me tell you the story of gold. If you are a gold bug out there and you think that, uh, that gold is the answer to all our problems, let me tell you another one, another quick one, the gold rush. You had a very similar circumstance. You know, back in the California gold rush, you had... You know, literally, as they called it, the gold rush for a reason. People found gold. And so you had people, you had towns. I mean, it's a, it's a story. I mean, I'm from Arizona originally, and um, you have these in Arizona. There's a town called, it's a tourist, tourist town now, but you have towns like Jerome, which were, you know, mines built on the side of cliffs. And, and when, when you go into Jerome, Arizona, it is a little town literally perched on the side of a cliff. I mean, not straight up and down vertical, but, you know, it's, it's a very steep mountainside and everything's built on little ledges and lean-tos and stuff like that. And they had hotels and brothels and bars and stuff like that because everybody was working the mine and there was plenty of money coming out of the mine, right? But California, during the gold rush, you had the same thing. You had towns springing up all over the place. And, uh, you know, an example, again, that, 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 that you read about in the economics textbooks is Brody, Arizona, Brody California. And, again, in the middle of nowhere... A big, highly elevated, you know, it's like, it's like 10,000 feet in elevation in the middle of it, almost like kind of a, a mountain valley desert-like thing where it's really hot in the summertime and really, really chilly in the wintertime. And the only reason you're going to be there is because, you know, heck, there was some gold. And uh, at one point, at, the, at its peak, this little town of Brody, California, had 10,000 people living in the middle of nowhere. But what you had is you had a gold economy. Everybody, you know, uh, you had guys that, you know, they, they arrived and staked their claim. And, you know, picture this. I mean, you, you, it, was, it, was, it was just this easy. You know, if you found the right spot, you'd take and stick your shovel in the ground full of dirt. You put the whole shovel in a slough and wash some water over it. The, the silt would wash away and a few grams of gold would be left because it was just there. It had the same thing as Molly, right? It, it had big deposits of gold just sitting in the soil. Right, and so you had all these poor miners, thousands of them at this point, walking around with little leather pouches filled with gold dust and small micro nuggets. Everything gold was the economy, right? And everybody else was there, bringing in everything from jugs of whiskey, building hotels, cafes, and clothiers, and they were all there to sell stuff to the miners. But quickly, very quickly. 
prices started skyrocketing. You know, you, you, hear, about, you hear about this all the time where, you know, the, when you said, hey, the miners, you know, miners didn't, you know, they all did all the work, but they didn't get any of the reward. Well, part of that, well, the reason was, is because when, when gold, you know, when, when gold was so plentiful, right, and that, got, that shop owner is down to like two or three shovels because these guys are wearing out shovels fast. He's down to two or three shovels. The miners come back. They're bidding up the price of shovels. So there was rampant inflation in the you know, gold towns of California. Prices skyrocketed in terms of gold. You know, the, the, the people, you know, people like to say, oh, hey, gold is a protector of wealth. Not there, not in Mali, not in North Africa, not in Egypt. It wasn't in, in the, the gold fields of California. The, the gold did not protect anybody's wealth. The problem, again, was that everybody had a pouch full of gold. The problem wasn't the, that, the, that the miners didn't have, enough, uh, didn't have enough money. The problem was they had too much of it. The market was saturated with what was being used at the time for currency, and this time, gold. You know, we rely on other types of, you know, hard metal currencies. Let's talk about silver for a second, all right? Nero was an emperor of Rome. And, and, these, and again, fact check the heck out of me, guys. I if, double check all these things. Nero, right? Aside from being, you know, a you know crazy, you know, sociopath of an emperor for Rome, he did a lot of things. He started a, a policy of of adjusting the silver content of his currency. He 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 debased the currency, and um, it created a, a, a terrible price inflation, right? Because there was lots of currency, lots of currency going around, um, and that wasn't corrected until two emperors later. Let me get, how about this? This is going to surprise the heck out of you because th this is a great story that my economics professors taught me. And again, forgive me, stick with me on this, guys, because, you know, it, it's going to sound like Jeff's going off the beam and kind of rambling here, but I'm guiding you toward a point, and it's an important point, all right? In the original novel that was released around the turn of the century, around 1900, The Wizard of Oz that Dorothy's magical shoes were silver slippers, not ruby slippers. They were changed to ruby slippers for the film because, you know, they were, it was, all, it was one of the first films in Technicolor, right? And the film goes from a black and white beginning to a bright and colorful when you go in the land of Oz. And they, the silver slippers, the idea of silver slippers, the director just didn't think it showed up well, so we changed them to ruby slippers. But the novel, they're silver slippers. Why? Well, many people, a lot of people, the smart people, think that the story of the Wizard of Oz is an allegory for an economic of an upheaval, huge upheaval caused by the demonetization of silver, um, and the whole country was moving towards the gold standard in the, in around eighteen ninety late eighteen hundreds, and. Silver was, you know, phasing out and gold was phasing in. And the, and the supply, that what that meant is that since the East Coast still had a big supply of gold and the West, the West, more Western states, they had a, a very low supply, you know, of silver, that silver prices, you know, went into flux, they plummeted, uh, they, the demand for silver, you know, went down and uh, deflation ran amok. You know, just people were destroyed. Fortunes were lost as a result of this, right? Um, 
Now, if you think about this, you know, and if you go on, you know, just do with this. If you, if you want to know the more story, because I don't have time for this right now, but if you want to look, a read about this, just go and search for something like a economic and political interpretations of The Wizard of Oz. That, that would, that'll get you probably six or seven, you know, intelligent articles at the top of the Google list that will give you all the details, because it it, for a guy like me, it's fascinating. But think about it. The comparisons are, are really interesting. The Wizard of Oz... O-Z, Oz, O-Z. Oz is, to this day, O-Z is the abbreviation for ounce, right? And both gold and silver are measured and sold and, and demarcated by the ounce here in the United States. You know, um, Yellow Brick Road. The Yellow Brick Road, the people were dancing to the Emerald City on a street of gold, Right? And, you know, when you're talking about the upheaval, you know, the magic way to return to the past, to return to where you are, to return where you want to be, is a couple of magic silver shoes. That's the way to get back. Think about that. You know, and they, and they go into further that they, they, people draw comparisons to the different characters in the film and stuff like that. And, uh, it, you know what, here, whether or not, whether or not, that was the intent of the author. I think his name was Baum. The, whether that was the intent of the author to draw that allegory, people make a very sound argument that it was. It doesn't matter. It's, it's an interesting little story. Um, but picture that. Do you want ever, do you want your monetary system to be tied to a commodity? You know, uh, Egypt, you know, we're going back to the, to, to the, the, you know, the, the emperor of Mali, right? Uh, Egypt ran their economy on gold, right? And it was an accident at the time, but it's an incredible lesson. If you want to destroy a country's economy, and their economy is dependent on gold, all you have to do is either increase or decrease the supply of gold. That's all you have to do. Think about that. I mean, this is the whole, again, little cultural reference here. This, this is the premise of the movie Goldfinger. Right? Remember, remember that? All right, first of all, anytime you can mention a Sean Connery film, it, it, you should do it because they're all great, and every one of you should watch all of them. But Goldfinger, the, the villain, he's not trying to steal the gold in Fort Knox. He's trying to make it, he's trying to irradiate it so it's unusable. And by doing so, he's going to drive down the economy of the United States and make his gold, gold stash in China super valuable. Gold stash in China, that, that seems a tad ironic today, but that's the plot of the film, right? Um, do you want to have your economy reliant on a commodity? And, you know, the answer is probably no. Now, a lot of people who think we should be on the gold standard a lot of people who think we should be on the gold standard, they like to point to the experience of the 1970s, right? Because something important happened there in the United States. Up until the early 70s, I think it was 1971, the United States was still on the gold standard, and uh, it was creating some problems. Um, you know, we just didn't have enough monetary, we didn't have enough money supply. But we, what we did is we, 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 we locked in, we fixed the price of gold, we locked in the price of gold to $35 an ounce. Right? $35 an ounce. Gold will never be more valuable than $35 an ounce, never be valued less. It's always, one ounce is always $35 US. That was, that was the decree at the time. And it had changed, it had changed throughout the years. But it was, at that point, boom, that was it. And so what we did is in 71, we, we got off the gold standard. 
we said we're, we're no longer going to tie it directly to gold. We're going to take and let the currency float. But if you think about that, if you're, if you're tied to gold, you know, um, uh, foreign currencies have trouble fluctuating properly to re- do market to respond to market conditions because you're locked into gold. You know, if a if a new gold mine is discovered someplace and the supply of gold goes up, you know, where the rest of the world now devalues gold, by default they now devalue your currency too, right? Because you're locked into the price of gold. You 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 know, no matter what, you know that if you have an ounce of gold, you you can get thirty five dollars of U.S. currency for it. If you know that, and then the, there's there's more gold, a glut of gold, and the, the value of gold goes down, you know, then you know you just you know you're just not going to use that U.S. currency the right way, right? You're not going to you're not going to you're not going to really want to use it because it's being you know the value of the U.S. currency is going down because the value of gold's going down, right? On that tied over currency, you know. Uh, likewise, if all of a sudden gold becomes more scarce, and if the U.S. currency is priced are tied to gold, the price of everything made in the United States is going to go up automatically because the price of the commodity underneath it is going up in the world market. It can make uh, Boeing's airplanes could become more expensive because the price of gold went up because they're pricing everything in U.S. dollars. You see how that works? You see why there's a problem there? So the first thing first, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people out there who are just, I don't think they're, most people are not being you know, they don't have evil intent. They're not trying to deceive, but, but people out there, they, they have a misperception. We didn't get off the gold standard to be tricky. We didn't get off the gold standard to steal people's money, like, like uh, some evil star chamber rubbing, like some, some you know, Mr. Smithers and, and the Simpson rubbing his hands together and, and uh, patting a pile of cash next to him. You know, I'm going to get all those middle-class people now. That's not the intent, Right. What we're doing, what the whole point of leaving the gold standard was to allow our currency to be allowed to fluctuate uh, uh, naturally in value against other currencies and against other commodities, and allow it actually freed up the gold market and the silver market. It made them more responsive to real demand. The real need for gold, the real desire for gold, is no longer tied for the desire to use U.S. currency, right? Plus the fact you can always take and balance your currency and make sure you have the right amount of it. The problem of stagflation in the 1970s, people blame it in the fact that we left the gold standard, but that's not the case. The problem was that they didn't manage the amount of money, the amount of not just currency, the amount of money, the money supply in the economy. They didn't balance it properly. And so even you know, during good times, you know, there, were, there were several boom-bust cycles. I think there were three in, in the 1970s. That every five years you'd have a boom, then you'd have a recession, and then a boom, then a recession, and people, yeah, you know, that, that was uh, people all believed that there was this new science of economics in in finance <clears throat> that we fig- we discovered, you know, called the business cycle, and it turns out that it had nothing to do with with a, any sort of natural rhythm in an economy, and had more to do with the poor management of money supply, right? So uh, in all those years, good years and bad years, you had the natural, whatever the natural growth rate of the economy was, plus the inflation rate, they always made more money. They, they put more money in the money supply than they had natural demand for money in the marketplace. And 
we got through it, and then we've ushered in what are arguably some of the most prosperous years economically for the nation since then. There are other problems, and we could talk about them at the time. But this brings us to an important part. It's a, it's a lot of detail, right? I told you about different types of currency. We went back 10,000 years in history, you know, yada, yada, yada. Jeff's just boring. He's the guy just yapping, flapping his jobs, trying to prove how smart he is. Let me just cut to the chase, all right? And, and I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm distilling it down. This is the meat of this whole podcast, right? And this could well be one of the most dangerous ideas I ever talk about in this podcast or, or any place else, really. <gasps> it's, it's, it's super likely to make everybody either mad at me or confused. It's an idea that I've never heard anybody else say this way, and it's been working my way through my, my mind for over a decade. But no matter how long I think about it, no matter how many economic books or research papers I read, I'm only more and more convinced that it's absolutely true. So I'm going to lean in. Joe, I want you to get this idea. The dangerous idea is really simple. And here it is. All currency is fiat currency. There is no exception Ever. Wow. Oh, yeah. Now, it's okay if you're new to finance and economics and markets and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's okay if the impact of that doesn't quite sink in. But there's a lot of people out there who make their living preaching or writing books or uh, on the assumption that what I just said is ridiculous. But you know what? I re- I'm right. And let me tell you why. If your currency is based on an underlying anything like uh, like uh, uh, like gold or silver or you know copper or cali shells, all right, it is only valuable so long as we as a people conducting our economy in that currency agree that it is. So. Fiat currency is something that we all collectively get together and agree on. We, you, me, and everybody else in the U.S. economy agrees, or the vast majority of us. I know that some people are out there throwing their, uh, you know, their phones across the room and ripping out their ear pods because they think I'm just being crazy insane and they're hitting that stop button. But those are the exceptions, right? The vast majority of us, the 99.9%, of the people in the United States, we all agree on what money is. It's not that, the, our, not that our currency is fiat currency dictated to us by the Federal Reserve and you know, enforced by the Treasury and backed up by the Army and they look at we're being put down by the man. That's a lot of BS. U.S. currency is currency because we all agree that it is. You and I. It's money because we say it's money, and that's the definition of fiat currency. And if we were trading shells, if we were using shells as currency, it'd be the same thing. Shell currency worked because they all agreed it was currency. Round stone slabs cut on a remote island in the South Pacific is currency because everybody agreed. Everybody's on the same page. Everybody trusted the people making the wheels. They agreed that it was currency, right? 
and it will con- our our U.S. greenbacks will continue to be currency so long as we all agree it is because there are certain elements. Now, when when you ask an economist to tell you what is money, he's going to recite to you five rules that are printed in every economics textbook, and I'm going to step around that. I'm going to say it in my own way, in a way that hopefully that you know we all can understand, right? Money to be money, it has to be trustworthy, right? It means it, it means you can't just print it in your basement. Hint. Bitcoin. Oh, man. You can't just print it in your basement that it's being produced and injected in the economy in a trustworthy manner. Two, we all have to agree on it. We all agree that it's currency. Three, the relative value has to be predictable. Note that I did not say in this case stable. I said predictable, right? That allows for a little bit of inflation or... or God help us, a little bit of deflation. It has to be predictable. You have to be able to know what it's going to be worth in the future, right? And you have to have the right amount of it. This is where stability comes in. If you have not enough money in in an economy, you get deflation. If you have too much money in the economy, you get inflation. You don't... The misconception is that just because we we just interjected $2 trillion in one way or another into the economy, that by definition we're going to have inflation. That's not true. What is true is we will have inflation if the $2 trillion is too much. We'll have deflation if the $2 trillion is not enough. I should do a whole podcast just on that, right? So... I'm gone way too long. I'm I'm nearly double what I you know I'm over I'm over 40 minutes. Holy mackerel! This we gotta stop this now. So topics to come: the monetary stimulus, uh, the monetary stimulus, rescue packages. We're gonna talk about cryptocurrencies, and a lot of people are gonna send me hate mail over that one. We're gonna talk about the job market and unemployment, and whatever else is needed or come up. If you have a question that you'd like me to cover, DM me on Twitter at Jeffrey J Hardy. That's just the best way to probably send a question to me. And let me know. I'll do my best to get it handled. And holy mackerel, um, there's a lot to talk about. And I hope you're finding this as interesting as I do. All right. Thanks, guys. Love you all. Thank you for listening. Talk to you soon. Jeff sets up his shot. Steps back. Head fake. He drives to the basket. And wham! Bam! Shazam! He dunks all over the guy.